Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I am Blue. And we are here to talk about Capcom game design, as well as some non-Capcom games too. This episode is, in a sense, the partner to episode 33, Positive Feedback Loops. So rather than looking at systems that snowball advantage or disadvantage, we're looking towards negative feedback loops. So where systems tend to bring things back towards the center, more or less. This is possibly more sensibly named to people, or or rather I should say more instinctually understood because a positive feedback loop, if you don't remember or if you haven't listened to the previous episode, is also an effect when you do poorly and are continually punished. And that sounds like a negative thing, but that's positive feedback, right? When you do poorly, you are punished. In this case, do well, get punished, do poorly, get rewarded, as a very rough summary. It's a very rough summary, but um, it's very important in games sometimes to have these systems, especially in, as we've got in a few of our examples, games that are competitive, but trying to be somewhat lighthearted and so... These sort of systems can bring a sense of fairness to a game rather than going too far in the opposite direction where people who win have just already won and there's a lot of game to play without any meaning for some players. This is a very interesting like topic, right? Because if a game is competitive, you want to allow people to feel as if their decisions matter throughout the game, but these systems have to be lenient enough that you can't just overturn someone who was winning at the very last moment, consistent. Yeah, you never want the winning move to be to lose. Until it's time to win. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a much better way to, to phrase it. So I don't think every game we're going to talk about today does this balance perfectly, but I think like that will go to show how complicated this balance is. This is actually honestly one of the hardest things to consider in a game with how well players can bring... Uh, victory back from the brink of defeat, while also making actions and decisions feel meaningful throughout the length of the game. These are going to be like two of the things that are at odds here. And our first game is perhaps to many people one of the more famous examples of this mechanic in action. Kart 8 is a 2014 kart racing game filled with items to change the moment-to-moment racing, developed by Nintendo EAD, directed by Kosuke Yabuki, produced by Hideki Kono, Yu Suzuki, and Yasuyuki Oyagi. So Mario Kart 8 maybe doesn't need a lot of introduction, but it's a kart racing game in which you play as characters from various Mario games, as well as a few other Nintendo properties around very fantastical tracks, often defying some sort of gravity, and using items to gain advantages throughout the match. In regards to the systems we're talking about today, negative feedback loops, perhaps the most infamous example of this mechanic in maybe all of gaming is the blue shell, in that it's very explicit in its intent. It's almost impossible to get as you are higher up the placements in the game. Not impossible impossible because Mario Kart's all percentages so there's very small small chances of getting almost anything at any position yeah I believe I've seen a blue shell obtained by a a racer in second you know like full uh what's the max 16 size lobby I think yeah that sounds good so I'll run with that yeah sure (laughs) but 
The basic idea being that the blue shell is an item that targets the player in first explicitly and can be used by people who are behind and is much more likely to be gotten by the person in last place. So this gives that person a real sense of agency about, oh, wait, I can stop the person in the lead winning. And often, as we talked about, like one of the tensions in this topic is the expression of player skill. And the blue shell can be particularly aggravating because unlike many of the other power-ups in Mario, this explicitly targets the person in first place and hinders them regardless of how well they're doing. And there's very little to avoid it. The One of the challenges that Mario Kart's design faces is that it has to account for various skill levels, which translates to various amounts of last place. Because you could be the 16th place racer, but a second behind 15th place, or you could be a minute behind, you could be a full lap behind, right? And chances are you're not going to win from a lap behind. But, you know, Mario Kart, is it's not impossible. If you are in that position, you're probably there because you don't play the game at the same skill level as the rest of the racers. But if you handed that controller off to someone who does know how to play the game, depending on how much time is left in the race... I actually think that rubber banding mechanics, this particular title, is strong enough to be able to catapult someone back into into the pack, at least, if not first place, right? Yeah, I think you can get back into the pack. So all the Mario Karts use the systems a little differently. Um, so there are two main, new main ways that it does negative feedback, one of which is through item distribution, Blue Shell being an example. The other that you brought up very quickly there is that your maximum speed and acceleration are stronger the further back you are. I do believe it doesn't care about actual distance between players, but it cares about placements. Oh, sorry, placement-based. Just to be clear. That's a fair point, which means that you are able to catch up in general to people. And this limits how far you can be really ahead of people. You can be very far ahead. I've played a lot of Mario Kart where people are really spaced across the track quite diversely but it sort of helps tend people towards a certain center if people are within like vaguely approximate skill levels and it's really important because mario kart's intent is to be a fun game that a lot of people can play regardless of skill level and it's really important in a game that everyone feels they have agency at any point so the chance of getting your blue shell let's go i can do something to win the chance of getting a bullet bill to let you leap a few places ahead lets you feel like, ah, oh, I'm now back in the race. I can, like, play for real now. One of the issues that arises from this kind of negative feedback loop is that once players are aware of it, it can be exploited. It's, it's very clear cut that you tend to get the more impactful items the further back in the pack you are. So what happens if it's not a pack that's distributed by skill range, but a skilled player strategically choosing to hold themselves back. The, the answer is that it's not clean, and their chances of winning actually go up by a significant amount. If like if they're very serious about just winning the game, I think a dominant strategy is actually to hold back to be middling to, to back of the pack until the last lap, right? I think that depends a little bit on the game, but I haven't really followed this at high-level play, but I know that a lot of you like, try to keep in second or so, at the very least. Not eight, but the latest Mario Kart, the one that had a lot of online, uh, the one where you could just randomly, that had online matchmaking. Eight. The Switch version. That is eight. Eight deluxe. 
8 Deluxe. Yes, 8 Deluxe. Specifically 8 Deluxe because a lot of people own the Switch and a lot of people were, were mucking around with um, online matchmaking. And it was a common complaint around at the time that all the good players were doing were hanging back. Now, if everyone in the lobby is a good player, this isn't that big of a deal. But what happens is that mediocre players will take the lead and then not be able to capitalize on the lead advantage. And then be assaulted by a very intense flurry of everything. Yep, because not only will the good players hang back, they'll save good items if they get it in the second lap or so of, uh, of an average three-lap game, right? Uh, an average three-lap race. Um, once they get a good item in the second lap, they'll kind of hang on to it until an opportune moment um, near near the end of the race, because that's just strategic. You give someone who's behind the least amount of time to be able to use the rubber banding. Um, contrast this to how an actual racing game would work. In an actual racing game, you would push your advantage and get as much distance between first place and second place as possible, because that distance has to be earned back, honestly, via either good driving on, on the second place uh, racer or mistakes on the first place racer's part. Particularly at high level, because of the speed differential um, of maximum speed and acceleration, as long as you're like kind of similar, a lot of the mistakes are glossed over so that second place and first place are you know more item dependent than actual skill, which kind of sucks. Like, you know, if, if you take this seriously and you want to compete in this, it kind of sucks. However, that brings me to another point, which is Mario Kart is a party game. It's not really designed to be taken seriously. And here's probably a good point to just say it. In most cases, comeback mechanics don't exist in normal sports because you're supposed to make the comeback by skill. Negative feedback is more of a video game thing than a sports thing, where there's a lot of parallels between competitive video games and sports, right? Rubber banding is not really one of them. You don't get an advantage for being, you know, 10 strokes ahead in ball. Uh, there's a little bit there's of a little. this sort of thing, but it's more like in season to season, um, teams that do poorly have, like, this is me pushing my sports knowledge, have, like, sele- better picks or more picks or mm-hmm. advantageous picks. I don't know what language to use. Yeah, they might get advantageous starting positions or whatever, but once a match has begun. Yeah. Yeah, once we're... Playing the games, there isn't any, but it's sort of that meta-seasonal stuff that gets some of that um, rubber banding going on. Which, in its own way, is like human nature's desire to see a fair and competitive game. So, I, I, I think I'm out of things to say for Mario Kart 8. There's one thing I want to say, so it's very important to make sure that we don't just think of this game has negative feedback or positive feedback. So there's a very important bit of positive feedback that occurs in this game, which is when you're hit by an item you're an easier target for a moment or two. It's very common to see, partially out of just confirmation bias, Yeah, but you're in first place. You get hit by a blue shell, and then you get hit by a red shell, and then you get hit by the bomb or whatever, and you suddenly go from being just a place behind to being many places behind. And then you have to catch back up, and yes, you're lower place, so you'll have things but it often doesn't feel like it quite balances out especially in eight i think more so as the rubber banding's a little less intense than perhaps it was in mario kart wii or something yeah there's aspects of positive and negative feedback in most games i think absolutely they don't exist um in isolation or in exclusion to the other they exist kind of in tandem. very good point yeah and i guess that brings us to our next game 
Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo is a 1996 battle puzzle game developed by Capcom, produced by Noritaka Funamizu and Takashi Sado, um, designed by Naoto Ota and Katsuhiro Eguchi. So, Puzzle Fighter, which is how I'm going to refer to this game from here on out, is a puzzle game much in the same vein as something like Puyo Puyo or columns where you drop blocks on your field, match blocks of a similar color, and in a multiplayer context, send wasted space effectively to your opponent's battlefield. The One of the main differences to this game compared to other color block puzzle games is that rather than just when you put four of a kind together, they vanish, you have to use special fuses to set them off, so special colored blocks. I think the game calls them attack gems. Attack gems, probably, yes. That send them off. And then there are also diamonds that can clear the board entirely of a single color. So in many ways, it's sort of your standard puzzle competitive game, but there are a few interesting nuances to this that are why we picked it. But first, let's talk about how negative feedback loops exist in this genre as a whole, I guess we can say. So one of the things about this sort of game is that when you play them single player, you generally just want to clear your board immediately. You never want anything excess. Think Tetris if you're not familiar with battle puzzle style games. And then when you add in a second player, you generally have these systems encouraging making combos or making very large things, which generally necessitates a board filled with content, filled with like gems or puyos or whatever the game's terms are, which means that a screen that has the power to win the game is also often only a few steps away from death itself. If you want to make a massive, powerful combo that can kill off your opponent, you have to have a lot of stuff on your board to let you do that. Might be worth saying here that you lose if you fill your board up. So you've got usually objects you're dropping onto your field, your board, which is usually taller than it is wide. When you meet certain conditions, usually matching colors, you can clear them off your board. And that usually, in most games in this genre, sends them to your opponent's side often in a way that is less useful to them. Either they're randomized or, in this game, they are inactive for a certain amount of turns. So they can't be used by your opponent for up to five turns or so, making them a lot of dead space they have to build around. Five drops. Yes, five drops. So when you have more stuff on your screen, though, you're both closer to death and you're more able to create a situation in which you can win the game from. Puzzle Fighter is really explicit in this though, in that there is just a raw multiplier for the amount you send to your opponent, the more gems you have on your board. So if you're near death and you send something to your opponent, it is just more than what you would have sent if you sent the same amount lower on the board. And to be clear, Puzzle Fighter is a game where even if your opponent has nothing on the board, it's not like so rare for you to just kill them instantly. Yes. Like, it is possible. Very, very possible. And that's why the multiplier sort of exists. And what this means is that if you look at a screenshot of this game, it is kind of difficult to know for sure who is winning and who is losing. And that tension is really fun, honestly. Like it means that these games are very dramatic. It means that, yes, if you're in the match, you probably have a good feeling of who is winning and who is losing. But 
you always sort of know that it could be you losing in the next minute or so very easily. You're on the back foot and you can feel that you're on the back foot because you're starting to lose control of the patterns that you're trying to set up. You can turn it around with one well-placed diamond. So, you know, sometimes you're just struggling to keep afloat until you get the diamond. As with a lot of these kinds of games, the, the order in which you get drops are fixed. You and your opponent always get things in the same order. And this game also has an extra element of predictability in compared to other puzzle games. Admittedly, in recent years, everything's gotten a lot more consistent. But unique for the era this came out was that every 25th drop would contain the diamond that can clear an entire color. And that lets you have a better idea of what you can and can't do throughout the match. How easily you can like fix mistakes that you've made now to clean up later, which actually minimizes one of the common positive feedback loops that are in puzzle games, which are if you set up your colored gems badly at the start of a match, fixing that is really, really difficult. Trying to dig, which is, you know, uh, trying to get lower on your board is often quite hard for an inexperienced player to do. But if diamonds are consistent, as long as you can hold out for it, you can at least target one of your problem colors on the bottom. And once you, as if you know that it's every 25, you can sort of rush to a diamond, try and solve a problem that doesn't seem to be getting solved without it. You might cause more problems for yourself, but as a beginner player, it sort of is another feature that helps just minimize the massive skill gaps that can be really strong in these sorts of games. And admittedly, this game has huge skill ceiling. So you're going to run into those differences, no matter how strong these systems are, of course. Well, here's the thing, right? The game doesn't really explain how frequent the diamonds happen and all this. Not not on the first playthrough. It takes a bit of time. Yeah, these are things that you have to intuit because it's an arcade game, so it never tells you anything. Yeah. However, once that is done, this is very nice for a new player because they at least have a few crutches. And crutches aren't always bad in games. Crutches sometimes allow you to get comfortable with a game. Um, I don't think that it's likely a new player will ever beat a skilled player in this game because they just know more. You know, the efficiency of actions in a game like this matters so much because your drop order is always the same because the things that you're going to get to drop down is always the same. A player who is more confident in where they're placing something just get through more before you can. So, And if they're playing faster, they'll get more diamonds, which speeds up their and lets them unleash the one big attack that will win them the game much faster. And this is not even to talk about like the ability to combo, because that that is something that I don't think the game ever properly teaches you, and it's just something that players over time have learned, for, especially from other fighting uh, puzzle games, that, yeah, we should learn how to build this way. The, the game does draw attention to the fact that you make combos when you do so, though. It doesn't teach you how to combo. I don't. I mean, I, I, I don't think any puzzle game teaches you how to combo. They want it to be more of a pachinko. Sometimes it happens. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of things go for, especially in the single player puzzles. And then since battle puzzlers have evolved from that, they've sort of maintained that mystique. At any rate, the very, very root concept for this is as you get closer to death, you will have more fuel to throw at your opponent if you can like find the right spot to use it. We are glossing over characters, which do matter in this game, but just know, um, relating to the negative feedback, um, if you can hold off and get a big board that you want to send all at once, 
one of the things is that this game graphically shows you your gems are combining if you get a four by four, three by three, etc. Um, gem, right? The, the the gem just becomes larger as a huge chunk. Makes it very visually easy to read the screen. But also, that is such a satisfying feeling. The sound of the glass of the gem crashing and breaking. Um, like it's a great touch to make it so satisfying. Do it so that this thing that is maybe not super intuitive because you have risk your own health in the game get there feels good and doing combos as well which like sacrificing you know your resource to build them up and risk more death by having more things set up but not going it's a lot of good glass like shattering sounds that feel super satisfying when you like hear multiple things go off at the same time and so on it's a great amount of game feel that helps sell like the value of doing the thing that seems dangerous to new players, which is something that puzzle games, I think, struggle really hard with, the how to make doing the good kind of play feel as satisfying as just the satisfaction of having a clean board. But I think we're delving a bit off the topic, and I think we've covered negative feedback for this game in particular. And with that, let's move on to our next Capcom game. Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3 is a 2011 3-on-3 tag team fighting game developed by A-Team, directed by Hiroyuki Nara and Go Usuma, and produced by Ryota Nitsuma. So the Marvel vs. Capcom series is a tag fighter in that there are two players, and each player controls a team of fighters. In this game, control three characters, and the goal is very simple. Just deplete the life bar of the opposing player. All of their life bars. So there's three characters. Does that cover the basics, you reckon? Yeah, that covers the basics. I don't think we need to get too into the specifics. Other than while you're fighting what would otherwise be a relatively typical, if frenetic, sort of Street Fighter-like fighting game, you can call in your additional characters to do short moves and like extend your options. Now, we mentioned before that this episode going over negative feedback is kind of like a partner episode to a previous one where we talked about positive feedback. And this game is actually one that appears both covered to the best of our abilities, how a lot of the game is set up to be a positive feedback loop where if you win, you're just going to keep winning more. The very quick summary key principle to keep in mind is that having three characters is more powerful than having one character. So even if your three characters are weak and low on health, you have a significant advantage over one completely healthy character. Now, how does this game handle negative feedback? How does this game give the losing player an opportunity to come back? Um, two words, X-Factor. It is a unique mechanic to the Marvel vs. Capcom 3 entry, specifically, that gives you a momentary buff to your team that is that lasts and is as strong as a variable amount depending on how far behind you are. Which is to say, the less characters you have, the stronger X Factor is for you. And how much it affects each individual character is a little different, but in general, it is extremely powerful when you have only one character left. You can do things that were entirely impossible beforehand. It's not just like plus 15% strength. It's like sometimes doing as much as double damage, if not more, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And another weird factor is fighting games. So this is just a design thing. Fighting games are very hesitant 
to change how fast a move comes out because a lot of the balance works around timing. Uh, X factor on some characters issues that and just goes, yeah, you can be faster. And what this means is that not just the amount of damage you can do is increased. Sometimes you can do things that loop into themselves in X factor. And this isn't really broken because X factor is a limited time buff, but it is kind of broken because X factor while a limited time buff is strong enough to allow you to just kill an entire team while it's running. A few characters even have infinites, a combo that you can do as long as you like, basically in this mode that will guarantee death if you can start it. Not that the skin doesn't lack those sorts of moves, but like that's the sort of thing that it can enable certain people to do. So it's a very, very powerful tool. And, you know, with hindsight, with, with a decade of game development between now and then, we look back and we can see that it was probably a bit overtuned at the time, but it does accomplish what it sets out to do, which is you don't really feel out of it if you're down to even a single character where you should be losing. As long as you have X-Factor, you really feel like you still have a shot back in the game. You can just find your spot, find your moment. And if you don't find that spot and moment, well, the game's going to end that soon, and then you can just go to the next game, right? So in terms of like preserving the pace of how do I play against another player, yeah, it's, it's kind of good. It doesn't make you feel too disheartened as you're losing until you've lost, and then you just go into the next game. So cool for that. And it's not like, I think it's only useful when you're behind, like, some of these sorts of mechanics, like blue shells, if you got one in first place, you're not going to use it. And if you do, you're a very brave person. But here in Marvel vs. Capcom 3, you can use this mechanic when you have a lead. It's not as advantageous to you, but it still would let you do things that maybe you couldn't before and let you net secure a victory that you wouldn't otherwise. But if you're losing, it lets you maintain a certain level of drama. And Marvel vs. Capcom 3 is still a beloved game in the fighting game community, despite its many, many flaws. And I think that, well, I wouldn't say it's only because of X-Factor or anything. The drama that this ability gave so many matches, the ability for so many dramatic comebacks, was always very exciting. Honestly, I would say in spite of X-Factor. Yeah. Yeah, well, sometimes even despite, like, you used it too early in a match, you ran out, and you still made the comeback anyway. Like, the existence of this ability reframes comebacks. Like, it's exciting when you do it, at, with it, and it's even more exciting if you pull it off without using it at all. Yeah, that might be all we really have to say in this one, because a lot of the, like, interesting context for this game is how X-Factor kind of plays in both spaces of positive and negative feedback. Um, and if you want to hear our full thoughts on that, it's not a perfect section, but check out of the previous episode where we talked about it. Yeah, which is episode 33. And yeah, with that then, let's go on to our next game. Curse of the Dead Gods is a 2021 rogue adjacent game Developed by Pastec Games and designed by, I apologize if I mangle your name, Adrian Crochet. Um, oh, two to three minutes to talk about this. Let's see. It is a roguelite-ish, rogue-adjacent <laughs> game-ish, in that you make a run and you're not really expected to make it to the end, especially on your first run, right? Yes-ish. To me, one of the most notable factors of this in sort of the rogue-ish genre is... Most of these games have one dungeon, 
to accomplish. And this game subdivides that into like you have a first tier of dungeons, a second tier of dungeons, and so on that you work up through. And so as you gain all the meta progression things that are in this sort of game, you're sort of dealing more with the balance of having those things. There's more expectation of what you've got. And so the starts of runs go straight into having those things. Whereas in the thing that this is often compared to Hades, you're always starting at the start of the same place. Yeah, you're always starting in, I should know the first area, Tartarus? Yeah, that sounds good. Say Tartarus. You're really bad. I played a lot of that game. But what we're really interested in, in terms of a negative feedback system for Curse of the Dead Gods, is the curse. So your uh, archaeologist, adventurer, doomed person uh, has a meter that is accumulated curse. I don't remember the exact terminology. I'm so sorry to say but basically accumulated amount of curse. And once that hits 100, you gain a particularly nasty debuff. Sometimes they're particularly nasty. There's a lot of variation in what these are, and some of them are like very debilitating, and some of them are kind of not that bad. Like There's one that's nearsightedness, where farsightedness, like you can only see, you can't see the ones that are near, the, the next rooms that are close to you, but you can see further down the chart as you progress through rooms in sort of a Slay the Spire-like chart fashion. And that- I'd say that's pretty bad because all of these decisions are like super- If you remember the chart, then so you can see the things that are more than the next room ahead. So if you plan out more, then you're fine. Like it's very, very easy to work around that with a bit of memory. So some of them are pretty easy to work around. Some of them are pretty debilitating. There's a lot of variation in these curses. At least that was my experience with them. No, I, I can definitely see that. And some are intertwined with buffs as well. Like there's one that's you take significantly more damage until you kill 30 enemies. And then you get this buff. But you don't want them. They're all still things that you don't want. Even if they have a small boon or they're fairly easy to work around, they're still extra effort for you to manage in a game that is pretty out to kill you in general. One of one of my favorite terminology when talking about what a game asks of you is a mental stack. That is the description of how many things you have to juggle in your head. I have to keep track of, so, you know, in a, in a survival game, I have to keep track of hunger, my thirst, my comfort, my fatigue and stuff like that. In a game like this, it's, I have to keep track of the darkness because literal light levels are a factor in the game and change things. I have to keep track of where enemies are. I have to keep track of possible traps in a room. I have to keep track of possible hidden walls, uh, hidden, you know, false exits and stuff like that. And so what the curse system does is it keeps adding things onto the mental stack, whether or not they're debilitating. But, you know, it, it forces the player to be more considerate, which is great because this curse system have to interact. Why do you have to interact with it, you might ask, dear listener? Well, anytime you progress through the dungeon, you are forced to take 20 of the 100. You know, 20 extra curse fluid um, yep. level uh, out of the 100 that gets you to your next curse. And each dungeon is, I believe, more than five rooms deep, yeah. even if you at take least, the shortest path. Like, yeah. So you're forced to deal with this at some point. And I think that's why some of the curses aren't as debilitating, so that you can, you know, RNG into a potentially decent um, curse for your situation. But then you add on to that the fact that this curse level is also built up from um, taking damage, oftentimes adds curse. Yeah, you can gain curse in a variety of ways, taking damage. You can also 
intriguingly use curse instead of money to acquire various boons throughout the run. Or better equipment or... Healing. Yes, healing. That was the one. I was, there's, there's one more very important thing. So you have health, which if it depletes, you're dead, you're gone, your run's over. You can heal at fountains, and you can heal multiple times at fountains. But every time you heal, you take a pretty sizable amount of curse. And I don't remember the exact numbers, though. It's very comparable to, um, to a door. Yeah, it's very comparable to a door. I think you gain about a third of your life for 20 or 25. Yeah. So, so it's effectively adding a, a door's worth of, of um, curse level onto... Dear listener, you're probably thinking to yourself, but how is this a negative feedback loop? This sounds like it's just a positive feedback loop. You're going to get these curses. They will make you do worse. When you need healing, you will need to heal more life because you're doing badly. But this is where all that roguelikiness comes in. Over the course of your run, you're going to acquire better items. You're going to acquire relics that give you interesting passive bonuses. You're going to acquire all these things that are increasing your power while at the same time taking on these curses. And sometimes you might literally buy something with the curse points that will throw you the next curse, but also give you something that will hopefully be worth that curse. So it's a negative feedback loop in that you can choose to make the decision to win more and then be punished for it. And I think I really like the explicitness in the system of you can just go, no, that'll help my build way too much that I'm going to chance whatever this curse is, even if it could. And here's the thing, um, depending on what you're going for, you can actually debilitate yourself completely if you get the wrong, if you roll the wrong thing on the curse table, that yep. it may not have been worth it. And yeah, that's that's the fun part. In one of my very first runs, I gained a bunch of things that were tied to gold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, just- and then I gained a curse that stopped me picking up gold. And whenever I did pick up gold, it would replace it with um, a small amount of life gain, yeah. I think it was. Which meant that all the things I had built up that all required collecting gold to trigger didn't happen. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> and I was very unhappy with that moment, but it was also very cool, like, very, like, Midas touch, gold is actually the curse, not the solution yep. sort of feeling. But sometimes it all works out very beautifully in sync, but usually not. So here's the thing as well about a negative feedback loop, especially in roguelike, roguelite, rogue-adjacent games. There's a natural one built in so long as difficulty climbs. If enemies get tougher the further you are into the game, as you so if you win and the enemies get tougher, that's actually a negative feedback loop. That's something that the game is designed to equalize the playing field so that you don't snowball an advantage too far. And oftentimes, your goal in those games is to get a snowball that is so unstoppable that even the game's climbing difficulty can't deal with it. I think that's why I like to like bring up Curse of the Dead Gods for uh, talking about negative feedback specifically because player can just choose to shoot themselves in the foot um, thinking that they're getting an unstoppable snowball when actually they've made the game too difficult too fast and that that system relies can sit squarely in the player's hands is very very cool yeah i think that's that's like it for the things to say about this game that are relevant to this topic at least i think it's a really cool game that i really recommend much more so than i thought i would enjoy actually when coming to it for this and with that let's look at our last game
Resident Evil 4 is a 2005 third-person shooter developed by Capcom. It was directed by Shinji Mikami, produced by Hiroyuki Kobayashi, and designed by Hiroshi Shibata, Koji Kakae, and Shigenori Ishikawa. So this is an interesting one. We've, we've actually talked about this game in a previous Platforms of Pitfalls episode um, titled Flexible Difficulty. And interestingly, we're actually going to rehash like a lot of the same ground because part of flexible difficulty is, well, negative feedback um, and how that affects it. Uh, what we didn't do in that episode is uh, describe the game very well at all. So uh, this game in Resident Evil 4, you play as Neon Kennedy from a, like, is it over the shoulder? Yeah, it's an over-the-shoulder third-person perspective that, compared to how we modern in modern sense think about this genre, is relatively heavy to control, I guess you could say. So you don't just aim with the right stick at any point. You have to go into an aiming mode to start aiming with the left stick. It's a stance, okay? You have to, you have to set your feet and then pull the gun up, okay? Which gives it a very distinct rhythm to a lot of third-person shooters, both of the era and today, that I think makes it honestly really compelling, in a sense, to play, and it feels very apart from what we experience in this genre. Once you set yourself up to expect, because if you're expecting a responsive third-person shooter that's like, you know, jumping around, shooting, jumping over cover, ducking, this is not that. <laughs> this, this is just not that game. But... What is interesting that it's really particularly worth talking about in terms of negative feedback is that quite hidden, as in people were surprised to find this out years after the game you know, had been out for a while, is that there is a flexible difficulty system in the game, not unlike what Left 4 Dead touts as his AI director, that attempts to make the game easier or harder depending on how you are performing. And it's very impressive that it's so subtle. Like, it is... Something that many players will play through the game not noticing at all. There are a few like there are a few spots that if you fail too much or succeed too much with it, you might be able to spot the difference very clearly. But usually it's very hard to change the system so much in a single area that those jarring moments are really visible to you. But the general gist of it is that you pick your default difficulty at the start of the game and that caps the upper and lower bounds of the difficulty, basically. With normal being able to cover the whole spectrum from 1 to 10, easy capping out at 6 and pro being stuck at the hardest, 10. So you can opt if you just want the hardest challenge and never want the game to let up on you. You can commit to that if you really so choose. But what's cool is like the things that it adjusts for this difficulty so that it feels subtle. It's things like item drops. It's things like enemy aggression. And it's only like at a few set points that the layouts of, or the positioning, I should say, sorry, of enemies will really change. So even if you're playing through it and you experience one of those big changes, if you're not paying a lot of attention to it, you might not even notice it that it happened, which is pretty good. Like yeah. a lot of systems are can be described as successful if, when it functions, players don't notice it, right? So this is really, really good. And I don't. I want to like not understate how important items are in a Resident Evil game because it has this like pedigree of survival in in its DNA. So measuring out and your items, your resources is very important. And while Resident Evil 4 is a much more fast-paced and loose game as compared to its predecessors, it still cares about you running out of ammo or running out of healing um, items here and there. 
but it also wants you to succeed. So I'm very bad at games that want me to aim well. And so when I play a game like this that has limited resources, I am a bit anxious about overspending them. But when I played this, and I've always played this knowing this system exists admittedly, which changes my experience of it quite a lot compared to the intended experience. But when I've played this, even without thinking about that, I generally had enough, even if I wasted a lot. Because one of the factors in this game's difficulty management is missed shots. Missed shots are actually way really strongly in bringing you down the ranks. And missing with things that should be very easy to hit with, like grenades, are a huge like deduction in difficulty. The game looks at what you did and they just kind of squint and then they hide a grenade in your path later on because uh, because you missed. Uh, is basically what happens. And it's it's um it's really cool, especially when you contrast with the other games we've talked about, because this is a negative feedback that's like very deliberately trying to rubber band you in both ways. It wants a specific tense experience for everyone. And it is doing its best through watching you play to give everyone this tense experience that nearly kills you, that pushes you to nearly having nothing, but never actually gives you nothing, gets you nothing. I think that as I was playing, I didn't play a huge amount of this game, but as I played through this game, I felt like the game wanted every encounter to end with you having more than about one magazine, you know, relative to your weapon of ammo. That's where the game felt like it was doing its best, right? Where where, where you feel like, oh, I was so close to just being out of resources for this fight, you know? Yeah, especially the boss fight. But it's, you know, very satisfying when you have those few moments where like, oh, I have so much stuff. And then you do really well and the game like starts giving you less and you get back to that normalcy after just doing so well for a while. And yeah, this is like a really important thing to add to this list, I think, because everything else that we've talked about is these very, like three of them are multiplayer. And that's like limited to the length of the matches themselves. Curse of the Dead Gods. That is the name of that game. Yeah. That game is run based. And so while the runs might be 10, 15, even 20 minutes longer than the multiplayer games, it's still not long. Like we're not managing this system over hours and hours. Whereas Resident Evil 4, while not a long game, falls into the category of like long form single player game. It's many hours long. It is longer than a movie. And so maintaining the system over such a length of time is also just a really interesting difference. And doing this like narrative and thematic reasons to like create a tone that suits the experience more so than just we want to make sure this is fair for everyone. Yeah. Which is kind of what these systems usually are sort of intended for. This system doesn't exist to make Mario Kart like, oh, you might win this. It's there to like make sure that, oh, you are bad at this game, but you still feel the pressure that a good player is supposed to feel as well. Ne- negative feedback looks are a lot about drama, so I think it accomplishes what it sets out to do. I think it 100% accomplishes it. Like, as someone who is anxious about like aiming in these sorts of games, yeah, I was able to get the experience that I feel it wanted from me, even if a little bit was mitigated by uh, knowing about it. Yeah, being in a peek behind the curtain, so to speak. Yeah. Do you have anything more to add there? I think I'm good. Yeah. Okay then, and with that, let's move on to our summaries. So, 
we've talked about all we wanted to talk about. So let's just tell you what we talked about as a good standard high school essayist once said. First, we talked about Mario Kart 8 and how it uses rubber banding and item distribution to make players feel like they always have a chance in the race, particularly in line with its goals of being a sort of party game that anyone can pick up and really enjoy. We looked at Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo next and how it uses the natural elements of puzzle games by having more things on your screen being both the reason you might die, but also the ammunition that you're going to use to win and combining that with just a direct multiplier for doing things higher up in the screen to incentivize players to play to that strength, even if it's done very subtly and to reward players for playing in this manner. Then we looked at Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3 and looked at how we have a system that naturally has a large amount of positive feedback to it. And so in order to mitigate some of that, a negative feedback loop was introduced through the X-Factor mechanic, giving players a huge power boost they can use when they are behind in the match, but not one that necessarily guarantees them victory and that can still be used even if you aren't in that losing situation but is more useful in that situation. Then we moved on to Curse of the Dead Gods, which is a run-based game, and it puts the decision-making of when and how much you take on the game's debuffs to potentially make the game harder for you in the hands of the player in exchange for getting stronger. And finally, Resident Evil 4, with um, honestly a really early version of the AI director, adjusting its difficulty and kind of rubber banding based on how well you perform in the game, making the game a bit more generous and a bit more forgiving if you, you know, do things like miss shots and lose, which to some people might be indicators that you are performing poorly at a game, making it easier for you. And with that, thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to talk with us about anything we discussed, correct us, suggest games we maybe missed for this topic, you should tweet at the show, at Platinum Pit. We always love talking about these games with you. And you can also find our personal accounts in the show notes. If you aren't one for Twitter, we of course have a Facebook page and an email there too, along with our website. If you enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Or if you're feeling especially fancy, review it. This podcast is not the only thing that me and Blue do. You can find some of my writing at pixelsforbreakfast.net. And there you should see in around the time this episode is released an article on one of my favorite fighting games, Evil Zone, which has its own sort of negative feedback loop in it that I think is particularly interesting. Which we did consider for this episode, actually. We did and found that it's sort of not quite distinct enough in a way that would warrant its inclusion alongside Marvel, I think. Yeah. So you can definitely read up more about that because it's really, really cool of a game. And please do go check it out. If you're interested in hearing more from me, hearing me specifically, I um I ramble sometimes incoherently. People would say almost weekly at this point. Um, with um on another podcast with my co-host um Stephen Heller, where we talk about news from the industry around games, offer our opinions and perspectives, and generally implore people to consider the people behind games because that's really important and it's really cool and games are really awesome. But there's a human cost associated with it as well. Very much so. Thinking of costs, our next episode is about MP systems and costs in RPGs. We're looking at Chrono Cross, 
Tactics Ogre, Let Us Cling Together, Blue Reflection, Persona 5 Strikers, and Persona Q. So if you have any thoughts on these games, please contact us through the channels and we'd love to hear your thoughts on them and how they use their MP. And with that, thank you for listening.